Welcome to BDO Talks ERISA, a monthly podcast from BDO's ERISA Center of Excellence. Each month, we will be talking best practices around all things ERISA, how to avoid common compliance issues, how to navigate the tricky ins and outs of ERISA's fiduciary provisions, and discussing our own experiences working for BDO's ERISA Services Group and the insights we share through the ERISA Center of Excellence. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Let's get started. Welcome to another podcast for BDO Talks ERISA. I'm Beth Garner. I am the National Practice Leader for our Employee Benefit Plan Audit Group and a partner here at BDO. We are so excited to have you join us today. We say this every time, but this is a podcast of an extension of our BDO ERISA Center of Excellence. You know, we develop the podcast to expand on topics and issues that we bring to you throughout our social media posting on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and additionally, our quarterly ERISA Roundup. So the goal of our Center of Excellence is to truly help any plan sponsor and anyone charged with governance of their retirement plan with up-to-date information on what is going on in this industry. You know, we know that these professionals wear many hats within their organization, and our Center of Excellence can be a place to quickly get up-to-date information to help them with their responsibilities. Today, heavy topic, we're going to just discuss litigation under ERISA. You know, these court cases are really bringing to the forefront fiduciary responsibilities for those charged with governance relating to their retirement plans. So let's back up a little bit. In general terms, a fiduciary is a person who owes a duty of care and trust to another and must act primarily for the benefit of the other in a particular activity. So for for retirement plans, the law defines the actions that result in fiduciary duties and the extent of those duties. So many of actions needed to operate a qualified retirement plan, that involves fiduciary decisions. Whether you hire someone to manage the plan for you or you do plan management yourself, controlling plan assets or using discretion and managing the plan makes you or the entity you hire a plan fiduciary to the extent of that discretion or control that you have over that plan. You know, fiduciary status is based on the functions performed for the plan. It's not a title. We call that being a functional fiduciary or a named fiduciary. You know, be aware that hiring someone to perform fiduciary functions is in itself a fiduciary act. So all those definitions of kind of the topic and and what we're dealing with. But before we dive in any further, joining me today on this podcast is, of course, my co-host, Joanne Zupka. And we have a guest today, David Levine from Groom Law Group. Of course, before we get David to introduce himself, and I'm going to tell a little bit, Joanne, go ahead and say hey. Hey there. Glad to be back. Yep. I'm sure everybody wants to hear that wonderful voice. So. David is a co-chair of Groom Law's employer-focused practice and covers retirement plans, fiduciary and plan governance, fringe benefits and payroll, executive compensation, and health and welfare benefits. We are absolutely delighted to have him join us today. So, David, we did kind of give you the cliff notes, but 
we would like for you to share something personable or, you know, business, whatever, something about yourself to give people a little glimpse into what you're all about. Sure. And thank you both for having me here. It's great to be here. I think the, the little insight that I'll give is about sort of a backstory. As lawyers, we're often viewed as dry and even boring. I'll accept that. Uh, what <laughs> I, I laugh about that. Well, it's true. Well, you just experienced what my, my, my insight is. If you Google on the internet or Bing or DuckDuckGo, if you're a privacy-minded person, uh, you and search uh, uh, David Levine, Levine Improv and Lawyer, you will find an article from about 10, 15 years ago where it was me doing improv comedy, which is not stand-up. I cannot write jokes to save my life. But where I did improvisational comedy for a while, and it was a lot of fun. And you might say, well, isn't that what lawyers do for a living? And the answer is yes. But putting that aside, um, the reality is, is I love doing improv. It sort of is the flip side of, of the uh, plain and staid lawyer type of thing. So it was a lot of fun, and it taught me a lot of skills that I carry with me to, the, to this day. And as my family tells me regularly, I truly am not that funny. Well, that is a fantastic little nugget about you. And I'm going to look up that article. Um, yeah. And I get told that too, that I'm not very, I'm not very funny or fun. So I get it, man. Yeah. You're not funny. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm giving you a virtual hug through the phone line. <laughs> okay. Um, so as Beth had kind of alluded about litigation under arrest that we've seen, Litigation cover a variety of topics, you know, alleging from bad fund choices to poor plan design to underperformance and, of course, excessive fees. So, David, is there like a basic or simple way to explain these lawsuits? Sure. As a def as someone who is on the uh, who is works for plan sponsors and is on the defense side in litigation, I could joke and just say they're just wrong. That's the easy way to do it. And that was a great <laughs> podcast. And thanks for having me. But um, uh, in reality, I think you want a little more from me. So let me let me dive on in a little bit here. Every lawsuit, you, you, you know, there's a lot of discussion out there at this point. The defense lawyers like me will often say, these lawsuits are cookie cutter. They say the same thing every time, yada, yada, yada. But what's at the core, all right, to put on the wonky lawyer hat for a second here, it's these lawsuits cover so many different topics, but in the end, the claims boil down to a couple topics, loyalty, prudence, and prohibited transactions. Let's talk through those very briefly, just so we can frame it out a little. Hopefully that help, helps the listeners get an idea of sort of why it all ties together. I can make a million arguments, bad fun, bad this, like, like you could say, bad investments, too much in fees, failure to monitor, made mistakes, didn't do this right about running your plan, didn't do that right about the plan. You could, you, know, you could go on and on, but underneath it all, the claims usually say one of these three things, loyalty, that in running your plan as a fiduciary, your, your fiduciary uh, responsibilities, you are not loyal. You put something else ahead of the benefit of participants and beneficiaries, and it could be, they could say, you did it to go to the Super Bowl, which is not most lawsuits. That's why I'm using it. It's just an extreme example that someone bought you a trip to the Super Bowl and therefore you hired them. Or you did it because it did something to enrich your company. Again, we've seen claims all over the map, but it's just not being loyal. 
the next claim that's out there that you see sometimes is a question about prudence. Was it prudent? Sort of was it substantively and procedurally prudent? Did you? And I think it really drives down to the process. You saying, was this decision something that had a basis? And how did you do it? What was your process for coming to it? ERISA, despite what may be said in some lawsuits, does not require us to have 2020 hindsight. It just requires us to have a good process and a reason why. You need to answer, why did I do this? And what was my basis? And document how I made my decision. But underneath it all, the claim that you will get all these different lawsuits will start with loyalty sometimes, but they all say prudence. You shouldn't have done that. You should have known better. And this is where your prudent process comes into the mix. The third thing is prohibited transactions. One of my well, catchphrases is that ERISA is a backwards law. The Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974. ERISA obviously came about, it came out of Studebaker and other types of things. But ERISA is backwards in that it basically says, you can't do anything with the money in the plan to like run the plan unless it's specifically permitted. For those who work in the securities industry, they usually think, they usually sort of say suitability, and it's sort of, is, it, is there a guidepost that blocks it? But ERISA kind of works backwards. So is it something that's prohibited? And the ERISA has all these prohibited transactions for whether you deal with someone, whether it's your auditor or your lawyer and paying them out of a plan, or whether it's self-dealing, that Super Bowl trip. There's two different types of prohibited transactions. One are so-called party and interest prohibited transactions. Those are important, but they are not as sort of, I'll call extreme, but they're still important and plaintiffs will still raise them. I'm not saying they don't count. And then there are the self-dealing ones, which are so-called 406B ones. And there are these exemptions out there under section 408 of ERISA, which are basically exemptions that say, oh yeah, you can pay reasonable compensation if you give proper fee disclosure, 408B2. Anybody who's gotten a fee disclosure notice would recognize those. So that's a very basic thing. It's loyalty, prudence, and prohibited transactions is usually what pops up in these cases. And no matter whether it is the old classic, you paid too much, or you didn't control the use of the data, or you didn't have proper security and there was a data breach, they almost always anchor to this. And if you're a fiduciary and think about these, when you're making decisions in your process through this lens, it can create a really good record. I could spend another hour talking about what goes in and out of minutes and how to balance, but I'll stop there because I don't want to burn the entire segment on that. Well, it's so interesting that you brought up minutes because when you were talking about making sure that you kind of document why your reasons, why you did something, and all of us on this podcast today have read minutes or been in part of a meeting where minutes are taken. Um, they always seem to document the de the decision that they made or who they decided to go with, but don't necessarily dive into the details of why somebody was not selected or excluded. So exactly, I agree with that, Joe. Definitely, the minute miss that miss that bar part. And, and and it's interesting. There's lots of schools of thought on minutes. Um, let's face it, we all are trying to help our clients. There's different views. Some people think very short minutes. Some people very very long. I, I'm going to sound like I'm going to sound like the three bears. I just need the amount that's just right for a particular client. To me, it's about including a level of detail that shows you gave thought, maybe with supplemental materials. But you don't have that. Plaintiffs like to say the rule is X. It's not always X. It's it's something that is in a range of reasonableness. But I think 
having some documentation of the why and materials can be really, really helpful, whether it's from your own team or from someone on the outside. Very good. So where do you see trends with these lawsuits going in the next several months or years? I mean, later this year, the Supreme Court's going to hear, you know, a case on ERISA. You know, what does that mean? What do you think that potential impact is going to be on future cases? Well, it's very interesting. And I'll lay out that case a little bit. Where is where is litigation going? Well, clearly, ERISA, let's start with the basics. ERISA litigation has been around for a very long time. And people often say the modern era began in 2006, and I'm not here to show for any plaintiff's firm, so I won't go by names. But the, the, the key point here is it's been around for a long time. There have been fee lawsuits before that, but you know, it's a combination of marketing, combination of modern trends. We're getting more and more. The number of players in the industry, it's kind of like that old classic line. You tell two friends, they tell two friends, and they tell two friends, and suddenly everybody knows. A lot of folks who may have done other types of litigation have moved into the area, like securities litigators. So now, whereas before you had a a small handful of firms that really brought these lawsuits, you see an ever-growing amount of people. We maintain an internal list at our firm. We track the firms and everything. And it's much more diverse than it ever was before and who brings these lawsuits. So as I look forward to go back to go back to your question, Beth, I would say that right now uh, I see these lawsuits continuing. I, I, in fact, you are seeing some efforts in some cases where someone was sued and then they come back a couple of years later and get sued again. I don't agree with that. And I would argue that the releases in a lot of those cases probably precludes it. But notwithstanding that, you're seeing sort of people cycling through and new claims. I think you will continue to see the tried and true, whether or not you agree that they're true, um, claims about you paid too much for record keeping, you you paid too much for this service provider, your funds were too much. You'll continue to see those. And you'll continue to see evolution of theory, especially in, in, and I'll say the more cookie cutter-ish ones. But I also think you're gonna continue to see innovation. We have seen the rise of lawsuits about uh, about breaches, and, and everybody likes to use the phrase cybersecurity. I'm a computer programmer at Core. I, you know, my skills are dated, but I get why people like the word cybersecurity. It's a great, great, great thing term. But the reality is, a lot of these are data breach items, and and secure, and they're not necessarily the record keeper's fault or the employer. Sometimes it can be identity theft from the employee. And so I think we're going to see more theft and takeover account lawsuits. And as these grow. I think it's hard. It's a business. I don't blame anybody, but you can't pay every single case. But how do you balance this? I also think you'll see more cases about data privacy. Uh, privacy, and I'm involved in some trade groups on things like this, like Sparks, so full disclosure. But as it relates to privacy, um, this is a very interesting one. The plaintiffs in some of their settlements have gotten representations and agreements not to do go out to bid, not to allow for the use of data. The DOL and its cybersecurity guidance has touched on a little. We could talk about that separately. But the actual number of plaintiff victories in recent years on uh, on on things like privacy, basically zero. Uh, we have the Northwestern case, and I'm going to bring it back to where we began. And then we also have the Shell case in Texas. In both co- cases, the courts went for the defense and said, basically, effectively, data is not a plan asset. Now, Settlements are not law, but they drive a process. The Northwestern case is is going to tie into this. Put simply, the the Supreme Court seemingly every year, or at least every other year, takes at least a case or two uh, on ERISA. 
Some justices have been quoted in the past saying that they find it interesting. Some have been quoted as as saying they find it to be one of the more inscrutable areas of the law. The simple answer is, is there's just a lot of grayness in our area. It's a complex area. And the Northwestern case is very much about when you file a lawsuit, what do you have to plead? In English, the Northwestern case really at the Supreme Court level, isn't isn't about other issues. It's about what do you need to get through basically a motion to dismiss is what this is about. For those who do not know the litigation mating dance, a lawsuit gets filed. And one of the first things that often, but not always happens, but often happens, is the defendants file a motion to dismiss. The standard is you basically take the plaintiff's allegations as true at a high level. There's a bunch of nuances there. And do they state a claim for legal relief, even if you take their facts as true? The their, the plaintiffs in the Northwestern situation claim they stated a, stated a claim well enough. The defense says no. And if the court, and this is a big deal because motions to dismiss, we, we've won a fair number, but we've also sometimes not always won. It, it, it could be a little hit or miss. And if the point, if the Supreme Court makes it easier to say yes, there's a claim stated here and unlock the doors of discovery, which is where you get all the documents and spend a lot of money on lawyers like me, that's if they make it easier to get by the motion to dismiss, that's going to ch- potentially encourage more litigation. If they sort of keep it where it is, or they even say you need to have a, a slightly higher standard of what you put into your pleading or your documents, that could change our discussion. So we're going to have to see where it goes. I don't think anybody can tell you where it lands today. I'm hopeful the Supreme Court will put in something that either maintains the status quo or makes it a little more stringent rather than unsubstantiated allegations. We'll have to see where we land. You stole my line, David. That's exactly what I was going to say. We're going to, it's not black or white. There's a lot of gray and we'll have to see where it ends Mm up. Um, So as you kind of alluded, you know, each litigation is unique. but it does seem that the majority of them that are out there deal with excessive fees. So is there just kind of a simple way to kind of break down the categories of the fees that um, those charged with governance should be aware of? Um, David, you're probably going to be like, seriously, y'all keep saying simple where you're like, in law, there's nothing that's simple. Well, first of all, I'm going to say all y'all bless your hearts. I want to know. I, and and my dad worked down south for a while, so I know what bless your heart means. So I'm just having fun with you, of course. With you, of course. <laughs> but um, putting that joke aside, how do we break it down to simple? Yes, let me try to do that. My theory is, is a lawyer should be able to explain things in English, and then be able, and then have people assume that you understand the technical underneath it all. So your question is really, what are these claims about fees really about? Let me try to put it simply. One. You pay too much for record-keeping services or, or TPA services. Number two, you pay too much for your financial advisor. Number three, you pay too much for other services, whether it's a wellness or a managed account. Number four, you pay too much for the fund on the fees. It was too expensive compared to the return you got and or other alternative funds. How's that for a simple way of talking only about fees? I love it. Very plain English and easy to understand. Well. David, I think we've kind of covered everything as we just kind of touched the surface uh, surface on ERISA litigation today. We uh, thank you for joining us. Um, we really greatly appreciate you sharing your insight. 
Remember, you can contact the podcast at BDOTalksOrissa at BDO.com. Our BDO Arissa Center of Excellence on BDO.com touches on all topics related to retirement and other HR trends to keep plan sponsors up to date. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to BDO Talks Arissa. Past episodes are available at BDO.com slash BDO Talks Arissa. Or you can go to iTunes or Spotify to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also send us feedback, questions, or ideas you have for future topics at BDOTalksArissa at BDO.com. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of BDO. For more information on BDO's Arissa Center of Excellence and the services we provide, visit BDO.com slash Arissa.